I'm Sue Nelson and welcome to the Planet Earth podcast. This week we're in Oxford to meet the man who not only had a hot date with an active volcano, but has witnessed the Earth splitting apart. I can accurately predict that there's some space weather ahead and news of what's been described as mechanical dolphins on their way to Antarctica. They move up and down in the upper kilometre of the ocean, making measurements of the temperature of the water and how salty it is. And every time they come to the surface, they phone home. It may seem relatively peaceful, but the Earth is under constant bombardment from the sun. Our nearest star spews out a stream of charged particles at speeds of around a million miles an hour. We're protected from this stream by a magnetic bubble called the magnetosphere, but sometimes that isn't enough. A large solar eruption can do serious damage, knocking out satellites or disrupting power supplies. After a period of calm, the sun's activity is expected to increase over the next few years, so it's important to be able to predict when solar storms are heading our way. Richard Hollingham went to meet geomagnetist Alan Thompson in the basement of the British Geological Survey in Edinburgh to uncover the history of space weather forecasting. Behind this store is our new archive store, and we've brought all our magnetic records from the various magnetic observatories in the UK, and we've brought them here to Edinburgh to keep them in a safe, secure environment to protect them for posterity, and also to get more science out of the information that's in them. And when you say a magnetic record, that's a record of the Earth's magnetic field, of fluctuations in the Earth's magnetic field. That's right. Our instruments record small, really small changes in the Earth's magnetic field, maybe on a normal day, maybe a few tenths of a degree in the compass direction. Uh, And we're doing that 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all the time, and we have been doing it in the UK for getting on for 160 years. Now, we're here to look at a particular year, 1859. So let's go and have have a look. Let's go. An appropriately creaky door. Shut that behind us. So down a ramp and into the archive, as you'd expect, stacks of well, cardboard boxes with various things. Q1909 to 1910, that one says. These are all labelled as well, 1876, 1850. Here we go, 18... Well, look at what we're after, 1859. So that's over... Oh, here we go. So 1859. So what's this represent? What's in this box? Okay, this box contains photographic records of the instruments that were running at the Greenwich Magnetic Observatory in 1859. And it was photographic paper. So essentially in those days they had little more than a magnet on a string with a mirror on it reflecting a beam of light onto a piece of photographic paper. So in this box we've got the volumes of all the magnetograms, the daily records, for that year. And in there is the event we're looking for. OK, so let's... Uh, if we just open this... It's all wrapped in, in tissue paper. paper. Because we want to preserve it. It almost looks like ancient parchment, doesn't it, with this it wiggly line on. This was from photographic yeah. paper, and then the marks along it. And this one here, what's this September? No, August. August 31st, yeah. so it 1859. Runs, it runs from August 31st into the 1st of September. And we've got two traces here, and one of them is the variation of the compass needle on that day. Now, most of the time, it doesn't change too much. It's a few tenths of a degree change on a normal day. But in this event, uh, towards the end of the record, there's a... Wow, it's right off the scale. It's huge. It's a few... 
few tents in just a few minutes of activity. And that marks the arrival of X-ray radiation from the sun. So it's taken eight, eight minutes from the sun. Something's happened on the sun on that day, and we're seeing the first record of that. And the way that works is the X-rays ionise the gas in the atmosphere, and those electrical currents cause magnetic field. And that's what our instruments measure. So we've picked that up, and we know this event followed what was known as a solar flare, the first one ever witnessed by eye by the astronomer Richard Carrington. So his claim to fame is that it's now named after him. It's the Carrington event of 1859, and it's the biggest magnetic storm that we think we have in our records. So in 1859, would anyone have noticed that? If they weren't measuring it, would anyone on Earth have noticed this solar activity? Yeah, well, this was the Victorian era, and we had a telegraph system. Some people have dubbed it the Victorian Internet. The telegraph operators normally would use batteries to power this system. But when the Aurora Borealis was in full swing, they didn't need to. They just disconnected, and the natural electromagnetic variations from this big solar activity, this magnetic storm, could power the internet, uh, sorry, the Victorian internet directly. So they could power the telegraph directly yeah. from the oh, sun? Yeah, and there's, in, there's reports of fires and uh, people getting electric shocks as well. So it was not a trivial uh, thing happening at the time. The point really is that in the early days of electricity, when you had things like the telegraph, this could have an impact. Yeah. If this happened today, yeah. 150 years on, yeah. big deal. It's a big deal, and that's why we want to get to grips with it. So, in a sense, this is a natural hazard to add to other natural hazards. OK, Alan, we've come to the opposite end of the building. We're up on the roof now. And this is how you do it these days. Yeah, yeah. So nowadays we have a series of automatic instruments that run at remote locations called magnetic observatories. And we have three of them in the UK. And the instrument we've got in front of us is one method that we use to calibrate those automatic instruments. Uh, and we need to do these observations at least once a week so we know we've got an absolute measure of the magnetic field. Now, Chris Turbot, you've set this instrument up for us. W- what can it measure? It looks almost like a, a surveyor's tool, you know, levelling a bridge or a road or something. Yeah, the, this is exactly what it is. You'll probably see surveyors using these at the side of the road. It's a yellow theodolite sitting on a wooden tripod. It's a little bit different in that all of the magnetic content's been taken out, so there's no iron and steel left in there. It's all been replaced with copper and brass, etc. And it has been adapted because we've put on the top of it, this is a fluxgate magnetometer, and it's a little instrument that's sensitive to the direction of the magnetic field along which it's pointing. And the idea of it is that we can rotate it around, the theodolite gives us the angle, we can rotate it around and search for the direction of the magnetic field, and it'll give us an audio output depending on the size of the magnetic field, and we just rotate that round until we, we, we can find the direction of magnetic north. OK, so that's telling me that we are actually off slightly. If I just rotate it, the theodolite round with the magnetometer on the top of it, it will oh. go through. I just went through it there. I'll just go back a little bit until... We, there we go. Oh. There we go, that's it, zero, so that's us lined up. Um, what it's doing, we've probably got the microphone a little bit close to it, so it's actually picking up the, the effect so it's picking of the up microphone. the microphone, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. It's that sensitive. If I can zero it, um, I've got a paper clip here. If I just move that within a few centimetres of the instrument, you'll hear that it's, it's sensitive. So to it's the, that sensitive, it detects a paper clip. That's right, yeah, and we're trying to measure the magnetic field the magnetic field is about 50,000 nanoteslas we're trying to measure about 0.1 so that's about two parts 
in a million that we're trying to measure the strength of the magnetic field with. So the instruments have to be very, very sensitive. Now, what's the point of doing this other to, than to build up a past record? Can you use it to predict what's going to happen? Well, one of the things we do is we exchange data with other institutes around the world, and that allows us to build up models and maps of how the field is changing. And in part of that process, yes, to some extent, we can predict the long-term change in the magnetic field, but realistically only up to about a year ahead, which is why we have a continuous process of measuring and modelling to build better maps. And with a bit of scientific insight, yes, we'd like to push that a bit further ahead than just a year ahead. And do you think... In our lifetimes, we'll see anything like that 1859 event. There's every chance of it. It's very hard to quantify how frequently such an event should come round. But the sun is very variable, and it's entirely possible that we can get an event like that, well, every maybe every 100 years. But that, it's hard to tell, and that's one of the reasons why we have to keep looking into the records to try and get a better understanding of, of just how frequent that might happen. Alan Thompson from the British Geological Survey in Edinburgh. You're listening to the Planet Earth podcast this week from the Department of Earth Sciences at Oxford University, where I'm joined by geologist David Ferguson, whose research focuses on volcanic activity in one of the remotest places on Earth. David, I think you better describe where exactly your research is taking place. So our, re- our research is focused on the Afar Depression, which is a, a great vast desert in northern Ethiopia, which is one of the remotest, as you say, and also one of the hottest places on Earth. Why the interest in that? Obviously, it, it sounds interesting just purely by the its location, yes. but what, as a geologist, interests you? Well, Afar, is, geologically, is, is a fascinating place because it's one of the few places on the Earth's surface where we can see the, the continental crust, and that's the, the rocky outer shell of the Earth that we live on. We can see it being, being ripped apart by the movement of tectonic plates and hot magma from the Earth's mantle, which is the, the region below the crust, wells up to fill the gap um, and, and creates a new ocean basin. How long have geologists known about this particular region? So the, the first geologists to, to visit Afar were probably there during the, the 1960s and the 1970s, and it was recognised at this point that it was a, an exceptional place to understand how plate tectonics work. Um, unfortunately, due to the, the independence war between Eritrea and Ethiopia, um, we haven't really been able to visit the area for decades. So it's only in the last 10 years or so that scientists have been able to get back into Afar and been able to study in detail the, um, the processes that are going on there. Before we go into the processes themselves, um, you've brought a couple of, of, of rocks here. Describe yes. to me and to us what this surface, this area of this rocky, remote place looks like. So, so in this bag, we have a piece of uh, basaltic lava. This is um, one of the most common rocks on Earth, actually, and this is one of the newest rocks on Earth. This is just approaching its first birthday. So this, piece of, this piece of their surface was, uh, was underground a year ago. And it's almost like a, a hard, black, grey piece of sponge. Yeah, very so it's, it's full of holes. So these are all the gas bubbles that escaped. It's quite spiky because it flowed across the surface and um, it's still young enough to preserve all these spiky bits. Um, and if you look carefully, you can see it's full of um, shiny crystals, large, white, uh, kind of glassy-looking crystals. Oh, yes. And they, these, these grew underground in a magma chamber where this lava was stored before it erupted. Um, and it's this other. We have another piece of rock here, which is which is very different. There's no there's no bubbles in this, and this is a piece of volcanic very glass. Shiny. It's incredibly shiny. It almost it's, looks like black marble. Yep, it's very heavy, and it's composed almost just entirely of glass. Let me just feel a bit. It's like the size of a bag of sugar yeah. this bit, and actually feels pretty much 
probably a bit heavier than a yeah, bag of sugar much as well. <laughs> um, and the, the difference between these two really is their chemistry. And this magma was so viscous that uh, the crystals that we see in this, this lava weren't able to grow. And so it's just solidified into a, just a, a chunk of glass, really. Now, this great big rift, you say it's an ocean-forming rift. Does that mean in the foreseeable future that the area, this, this part of, of, of Ethiopia that you're looking at, will be covered in sea uh, in, I don't know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of years' time. Yes, yeah, so the, 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 the crust that forms Ethiopia is being slowly stretched apart at about 20 millimetres a year, for instance. However, right now in Afar, that process within the last five years has speeded up dramatically um, and it's moved approximately a metre a year within the last, or two metres a year even within the last five years. We think this probably goes in stops and starts. And so at the average speed of maybe 20 millimetres a year, if this continues for 10 million years, for instance, then, we, yeah, we would probably see a new, a new ocean basin in Afar. How normal is this for a geologist to actually see this taking place? Um, it's incredible. It's pretty much a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Tectonic plates move very slowly, and it's, it's not common that we get a chance to, to witness a kind of furious stage of activity. One other well-documented phase, which was in Iceland in the 1970s. But apart from that, this is a, a very rare occurrence. And we think in, in this part of Afar, it probably happens every four to 500 years. So how often do you get to go out there? Because I, I know from reading, um, you kept a blog at one stage last yes. year that you had this hot date with a volcano. <laughs> so how likely are you to go out there? Or do you go out there as soon as you hear that there's activity? Is it like being like a fireman on call, or the, the um, geologist equivalent of a fireman? Yeah, a bit where volcanologists on call and um, we, we we go out for, for two reasons we go out to collect rock samples um, from older lava flows to uh, perform experiments on but yes as you say when when we hear that there's an eruption we try and get out there as quick as we can because we want to collect samples and we want to actually witness these eruptions in in progress if we can to learn a little bit about it we're always ready to drop everything and run out if we if we get the opportunity david ferguson thank you very much and if you're in london between the 25th of june and the 4th of july do check out the royal society's summer science exhibition because David will be there with the rest of the research group with a stand all about the project called Fast and Furious witnessing the birth of Africa's new ocean. The world's largest gathering of polar scientists recently took place in Oslo. Around 2,000 scientists took part and among them was Professor Karen Haywood, a physical oceanographer from the University of East Anglia. She's preparing for an unusual robotic ocean gliders project around the Ross Ice Shelf in Antarctica that's about to officially launch on the 1st of July. I caught up with Karen at the conference in Norway and found out all about it. These ocean robots are a bit like mechanical dolphins and they move up and down in the upper kilometre of the ocean making measurements of the temperature of the water and how salty it is. And every time they come to the surface, they phone home on a, an Iridium mobile phone, just like you or I do, and give us their data and receive commands for where they're going to go next. That's amazing. I mean, you say robotic dolphins. Are they, are they the size of a robotic dolphin? They're not that different to a real dolphin. They're about as big as a person. Bright yellow. Ours are bright yellow. They're very clever. The way they work is they don't have a propeller. They work by pumping oil from one side of a bladder to another side, and that changes the buoyancy 
of the instruments so they rise up or go down into the ocean. And what is actually inside them then? Because you say they can do all these things and they, mu- they must be filled with all, all manner of equipment. We've got three different instruments on ours. Temperature and salinity. They also measure how much oxygen there is in the water and they measure how much chlorophyll, how, how much green plants there are and they measure how much... Uh, backscatter of light there is, which is essentially how murky the water is. So they're in this specific area at the moment, or they're about to to explore the the Ross Sea, and and what in particular are they looking for? It's a multidisciplinary project, and we're looking for the, the processes that drive the production of plankton, the chlorophyll, the phytoplankton plants. So we're looking at the physical processes from the the wind, the interaction of the water with the ice. We're going to be very close to the Ross ice shelf and it's a very interesting area for the interaction of the physics and the chemistry and the biology. And why do it this way instead of using conventional methods like scientists on the ground who are at the bases there in Antarctica or using research ships? Well, there's a number of reasons, uh, and I think that sea gliders are going to be the way forward for, for the next decade. One is that they're cheaper than research ships. Research ships are very expensive. They burn an awful lot of oil, so we emit a, a huge amount of uh, CO2 into the atmosphere. But there are also things that you can do with gliders that you can't do in any other way. And one of them is that you can go there when the, the weather is really rough, uh, and another is that we're going to be using them in the Ross Sea. There's a fair amount of sea ice, and you can now use these gliders to go under the sea ice. So that's going to get us unique data that we can't get in any other way. You mentioned that these robotic dolphins, these ocean gliders, can phone home, come to the surface and and phone home. So does that mean you've got to wait for it, or could you get your data now off your mobile phone? I could actually get my data uh, right now off the mobile phone if you'd like to see some. I think I need proof of this, definitely. <laughs> okay. Here we so go. So I've got my iPhone now. And yeah, there's that characteristic <laughs> interference on the microphone. And uh, all I need to do is log into my email. And uh, sure enough, here is uh, an email from the UEAC glider. Uh, it's just phoned home with some data. We uh, haven't started the Antarctic work yet, but we do have one glider which is in the water off the west coast of Spain, and this one is is calling home once an hour to send us the temperature data, and we're able to put these on our website, and anybody can access them. The, The data are on the website within a few minutes of us receiving them. And we hope to bring you more news of that project from Antarctica later in the year. A brief preview now of how to get to the other end of the Earth, as regular Planet Earth presenter Richard Hollingham is preparing to go to the Arctic in an icebreaker ship with the Scottish Association for Marine Science. But first, there's the important matter of sea survival training. Here we go with the jump off the four-metre-high platform into the water. I have to say it looks a lot higher than four metres. Here it goes. Well, apart from managing to punch myself in the nose on the way down, I've got blood dripping down my chin. It seemed to come out relatively unscathed, still alive. You can hear more of Richard's experiences on our Facebook page.
Plus, communications permitting, you'll be able to follow his progress on board the ship on the Planet Earth online website. Next time, we'll be reporting from the Arctic. I'm Sue Nelson, and this has been the Planet Earth Podcast. Thanks for listening.